Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Good evening, children of the night. Well, we have some important business to talk about, don't we? If you follow us on Facebook or Twitter or on the District of Wonders mailing list, you saw the message that we're now about to start paying authors. This is an enormous step forward for our podcast and the District of Wonders. Let's talk about money for a second. This milestone is very important for us and for you. This allows us to compensate authors for their creative work attract high-quality work, and will serve as the first chapter of our transition from an exposure market to a paying market. This would not have been possible at all without two streams of revenue, the first being yours. Anyone that has contributed to one-time donations to the PayPal account or recurring payments to our Patreon account has served as being most important, the second being our first round of sponsors on ACAST. The changes you will immediately hear is myself speaking more about Patreon every week, and something that I've never really pushed for, but Tales to Terrify editors have been prodding me for quite some time. Uh, Just before I move on to that second thing, I did just want to say that although I'm not the money man, or the primary visionary for the District of Wonders, that'd be Tony, I'd really like to see a day where we can pay a healthy premium to contributing authors and to our contributing narrators, and have capital to grow other project ideas in the district that we just don't have resources for right now. All of that takes substantially more money than what we have flowing in currently, but if every single one of our weekly listeners were to chip in one American dollar a month to our Patreon page, Tales of Terrify's listeners would be able to fund all of the goals of the District of Wonders next month. That's done with some back-of-the-envelope math on my part, but it looks solid to me. Now, the other item. When Tony had made the move of the District of Wonders to our ACAST host, there were several reasons for it, and all of them were money-related. I had asked him when he expected that we'd start getting sponsors. At the time, he wasn't very sure. It seems like that ACAST users get sponsors once they've gotten mm, roughly 20,000 weekly listeners. 
Tales to Terrify got its first sponsor with half of that. That's a fact, and I'm happy about it. Although, I'm not quite sure if we just have some fans among the good people at HelloFresh, or just a bit of luck. So, I'd like to ask something of all of you. Well, something beyond your money in the Patreon page. (laughs) But that's some exposure for us. Likes on our Facebook page, retweets on Twitter, and ratings on iTunes, which still serves as the big boy directory for podcasts all makes us a bit more visible for new listeners, and new listeners translate into visibility for marketing opportunities, and advertisement revenue translates into us being able to buy bricks to build up this old haunted house. Just before we get on to our stories, a few answers for the questions from those who submit stories to our podcast. What does it mean that we're now going to be paying authors? First of all, that we'll be revising our minimum word count. Our author payout will be a flat dollar amount, so we are looking quite strongly at airing a single story a week instead of one, two, or three. Although there are a lot of fantastic short, short stories, I'd imagine that some of our listeners would be a bit disappointed to have an episode of Tales to Terrify that only ran 10 or 15 minutes. I'd really like to see our episode length stay at a half hour or more, Although it's a really solid story that runs only 20 minutes, I'd still like to see it air. Secondly, although there are still many things in the process that we're ironing out, one thing that I've been pressing for to remain true, Tales of Terrify has held the tradition of accepting stories from unpublished authors. We love being able to give the first break of exposure to a new author. I'd like to see that we keep that to be true. Now, as you might imagine... Authors that have not passed through the trial by fire at some other publications, sometimes, well, sometimes they really need to keep practicing, if I can be polite about it. Because we're now paying authors, our expectations for quality are going to go up a bit. And for those of you listeners that submit stories, keep that in mind. We may get a bit more harsh on the stories you submit. Third is contracts. Now that money is involved, we will have some formalized rights agreements that will outline what can be expected, of who and for how long. For years, it's operated on a sort of gentleman's agreement that beyond airing a story and leaving it in our back catalog of episodes, no rights were assumed. Now we'll have a bit of a formality to it. And I think that's all I have to say about this very welcome change to the District of Wonders for now. To sum it up, subscribe to our Patreon page, Help us out on social media, and authors, stay tuned for the fine details over the next few weeks. Oh, and after our stories tonight, don't forget to stick around for Rows of Six from Songs of the Pumpkin Boy. Let's get on to tonight's fiction, though. John C. Foster was born in Sleepy Hollow, New York, and has been afraid of the dark for as long as he can remember. A writer of thrillers and dark fiction, Foster was raised in the wilds of southern New Hampshire, read not very wild at all, before hauling stakes for the glow of Los Angeles. He has since relocated to the relative sanity of New York City, where he lives with his lady, Linda, and their dog, Coraline. Foster is an enthusiastic amateur cook, partially to offset all the griping that results from pushing his increasingly decrepit body through the rigors of martial arts training. Foster's stories can be found in issues number 8 of Shock Totem and Dark Visions, Volume 2 from Grey Matter Press, 
as well as anthologies from the Big Book of New Short Horror, Under the Stairs, A Book of Horror 2, Dead World 7, Undead Stories, and Book of the Dead 6, Forever Dead, among others. His first novel, Dead Men, was released in July of this past year by Perpetual Motion Machine Publishing. Children of the Night, give me your ears for John C. Foster's The Undertaker. As always, it began in a graveyard. And, as always, it began at night. A hollow-eyed man edged reluctantly among the granite markers. He was an undertaker of a sort, and he worked by the light of the full moon. Only two hours earlier, the shrill ring of the phone had echoed through the rooms of his house. When he answered, a familiar voice on the other end said, There's another one. At the end of the conversation, he had replied, Of course, and set out alone. The October wind whistled through the valley and pried at the undertaker's scarf with icy fingers, flipping his lank hair about and sending shivers down his spine. Pulling his coat about himself, he stepped out of the windy gust into the lee of a decrepit mausoleum. Faces were carved into the stone, surprisingly lifelike, yet utterly devoid of expression, as if the stone were elastic and the faces were pressing through from inside the mausoleum. The undertaker stepped away, shaking off the image. It was a trick of the eye, nothing more. God help him. The reality of graveyards was much more terrifying. Too soon, he found it. The hole had a blasted look, like a violent wound in the hard ground. Runnels of dirt were flung nearly a dozen feet, and the pauper's headstone had toppled into the hole, cracking in two. Taking a breath, he slid down into the grave in a cascade of dirt and pebbles. At the bottom he knelt and lifted the heavy stone of the top half of the marker. The name carved into it was Peter King Gory, but he barely noted this in his haste to drop it. He always looked at the dates first. Several years ago, he had concluded a pursuit with unusual ease. When he'd wiped away the matted dirt covering his quarry's decaying flesh, he had nearly fainted in surprise. It was a child. That was the only one he had ever talked to, though a smashed palate made gibberish out of its mouthings. After he'd returned the child, he'd wept over the grave, learning from the inscription that the little one had been only six years old. After that, he had been sent away for a while, to a place where he could rest. Every job since the child, he looked at the dates on the grave marker before he did anything else. He shifted position in the tight confines of the hole, and his shoulders dislodged more dirt, which tumbled inside his collar and made him shiver. He forced his fingers in between the rigid grit and the stone and lifted the bottom half of the marker. But the moonlight was too weak for him to discern the spidery scrawl. Reaching into a side pocket, 
he withdrew a matchbook and struck a lucifer alight. Flickering yellow illumination crawled across the pitted stone and revealed the dates to him. 1963 to 2009. He shook out the match and let the stone fall. He leaned back in relief, and fingers tickled his neck. He gurgled a scream and whirled, tripping over the gravestone, bouncing against the walls of the pit. He clawed against the dirt, fingernails peeling back as he held himself upright and finally managed to turn completely. It was just a root, exposed long ago by gravediggers and now dangling from the earthen wall of the grave. He smeared dirt across his brow when he tried to arm away the clammy sweat, then cradled his fingers until the sharp pain in their tips subsided. Finally, he was calm enough to climb from the hole. He was ready to work. His talent, or curse, was most closely akin to dowsing, save that his abilities sought out the dead, a special kind of dead, and led him unerringly to them. He did not need rituals, he did not need a coven. All he needed was the night and the grave from which the corpse had risen. He knelt and let his wounded hands find their way down to the clods of dirt hurled up by the undead's emergence. He crumbled a dry clump in his hand, letting it trickle between his fingers. Though he was unaware of it, his breathing slowed and his eyes rolled back in his head so that he saw through the whites. But he did not see the graveyard in which he knelt. He saw where the dead man was at that very moment. The place was a charnel house. An hour of frenetic driving had brought him to the small Cape Cod-style dwelling. From the outside, all looked well. A single car parked in the driveway. A Halloween pumpkin, as yet uncarved, sat on the step like a featureless orange gargoyle. The smell hit him before he passed through the front door. Inside, crusted brown smears of dried blood streaked the walls. Lamps were smashed. Tables and chairs were overturned. Somewhere, a phone was off the hook, and the incessant beep-beep-beep clawed at his self-control. He focused his vision on a single bloody handprint on the wall. Never mind that the severed hand that made it was lying against the baseboard four feet below the print. Never mind that the print wasn't made by leaning. In fact, the hand must have been thrown hard to splat against the cheery yellow wallpaper. Never mind that. He let his feeling extend out from his body through the walls until it filled the house. But Peter King Gorey wasn't present. Not anymore. Following the sound, he located the phone, and then, using a handkerchief, plucked it from the floor. He dialed 911 and whispered, Help! into the receiver before hanging up. Then he fled the house as quickly as possible. The man inside had been torn completely apart.
He spent the remainder of the night in a drab room at a nearly deserted roadside motel. He turned on every light and left them on. From a small television in the corner, the fuzzy static of a TV station off the air enveloped him in white noise. This was a bad one. Oh, this was a very bad one. A sharp crack-crack at the door jolted him to his feet, and for a split second he thought it was Peter King Gorey coming to find him. Then he realized it was simply an impatient knock. He rubbed his bloodshot eyes, finger-combed his hair back from his face, and opened the door. The man outside was squat and bundled warmly. A bright orange safety vest proclaimed, Triple-A messengers, 24 hours. The messenger took a half-step back, quiet alarm registering on his face. Then he stopped and offered a flat package. Are you Mr. Uh, Undertaker? That's me. This is the... Uh, sorry to disturb you so late. Uh, here. The Undertaker took the package and attempted a reassuring smile. Thank you. Emboldened by the smile, the messenger took a half-step back toward the door. Hey, uh, the, the name's some sort of joke? A hellish video loop of open graves played behind the undertaker's eyes. I wish it was. Something in his voice frightened the messenger again. I, I, I need you to, to sign for it, the squat man muttered nervously. The undertaker signed for the package, and the messenger hurried back to his car, orange vest bobbing across the darkened parking lot. The messenger's truck spit gravel from beneath its tires as it fled the motel. Closing and carefully latching the door, the undertaker sat on the bed and spread out the files contained within the package. Histories of two dead men. One told of Peter King Gorey, a businessman, family man, wife and daughter both dead from cancer. Gorey himself dead three months later with a massive aneurysm. Blood vessels in the soft tissue at the base of his brain literally exploding from pressure. He rose from the bed, rubbing his temples, checking the front door again. Locked. Crossed to the tiny bathroom and checked the opaque window set high in the wall. Locked. He returned to the bed and picked up the second file. Charles W. Bruce. The man Gory had slaughtered this very night. A realtor, divorced, lived modestly considering his financial success. He looked for connections, crossovers of their life paths. The dead don't return for small matters. He found nothing. The next evening, the motel manager asked him to leave. So the undertaker conducted his business away from prying eyes and a cluster of trees off a side road. The moonlight was bright enough to cast strange shadows and skeletal branches clattered in the wind. 
A crackly blanket of dead leaves hugged the hard ground. The undertaker knelt and tried to settle himself, but his eyes kept playing tricks, insisting that a shape in the dark was moving. Finally, he lurched up and angled towards the shadowy mass in question. It was an upended stump, and the wind was tickling thin filaments of its root structure. Nothing to be afraid of. The undertaker sucked in a shuddery breath, held it, and let it out. Then he pulled a paper sack from his coat pocket and emptied the grave dirt it carried into a cupped palm. The gift inside him reached out. Black night. The house was high-peaked and looming, surrounded by a wrought-iron fence as spidery-thin as an ink drawing. It was a gothic sculpture crouched on a bluff, connected to the coastal village below by a winding road. The undertaker sat in his car and let the cooling engine tick as he stared up at the grim cliché, window shutters banging in the wind. That didn't help. He pushed open the door and unfolded from the car, then shoved the door closed, wincing at the loud bang it made. Tick, 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 the engine, his heart, the clock counting down the minutes for Gory's next victim. The moon was hidden behind clouds. No streetlights lined the road. An ozone smell tickled his nostrils. He stepped forward, but stopped when he realized that the clacking of a swinging window shutter was matching his footsteps. Lunacy. He shoved his hands deep into his coat pockets and stepped forward again. The gate squealed in oxidized protest as he pulled it open. He stepped through into the yard and sensed a pressure building around him. The shutter was banging more quickly now. Clack, clack, clack. He fought to keep his breath slow, but it wanted to be quick and shallow, air barely pulling into the top of his lungs before it rushed out again. If a house could cast a shadow in the dark, then he stood in it. The explosion nearly sent him driving back through the gate and dumped quarts of adrenaline into his bloodstream the animal portion of his brain screaming, Flee! Flee! Even as the more encyclopedic section of his mind calmly noted, Thunder. With a whoosh, the rain came down. Stinging pellets of water struck his exposed face and hands. He hunched in his coat and laughed, the adrenaline strangling his mirth into a breathy cackle. A storm... The cliché was complete. His next laugh came easier and was more genuine. He hurried to the front step and... The door was open. The undertaker froze, oblivious to the rain pelting him, his eyes unable to discern anything in the pitch blackness of the foyer. Then he was turning and running across the squishy wet ground until he banged against the fence. He wrenched open the gate and slipped, sprawling into the runoff beside the road 
and soaking his knees. He hurled his gaze back and saw the black maw of the open door leering at him, poised to vomit forth an unspeakable horror. Then he was up and at the trunk of his car, fumbling out his keys, missing the lock on the first try. The doorway was still dark and empty. He opened the trunk and the wind fought him, driving the rain sideways against his face and neck. He searched among the shovels and picks and bags until he freed a long leather satchel. Tearing the zipper in his haste, he yanked out the gleaming black length of a shotgun, double-barreled. He broke the weapon open and thumbed in two heavy deer slugs, then stuffed several more into his deep coat pockets. Cradling the weapon at port arms, he slowly stalked the open doorway of the house as if he were a crouching animal ready to spring. He couldn't see more than a foot into the darkness. He took a deep breath and thumbed back both of the hammers, silently warning himself not to trip and blow himself to hell. In a flapping mass of coat and limbs, he charged through the door and into the foyer. He sensed the inner wall at the last moment and spun, slamming his back into it. His gun, eyes, ears, and feeling stabbed at the Stygian black, but found nothing. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A simultaneous flash boom of lightning and thunder strobe lit the foyer and deafened him. The afterimage danced in his eyes. Two doors and a wide staircase going up. Pulse pounding in his ears, he tried to reach out and sense the presence he sought, but fear blocked him. Would it be the attic or the cellar? It was always the attic or the cellar. He checked the bottom floor first, 
edging into rooms, waiting for lightning flares through the windows to flash-paint the picture for him. The place was oddly bereft of furniture, save for the occasional ancient overstuffed chair or carved table. Here and there, new appliances contrasted sharply. A microwave, a television. As if the house were caught in a shift between the ages, between Victorian and modern. When he realized the house had no cellar, he almost gave a giddy laugh. Almost. Lightning. Pause. Thunder. The eye of the storm was moving farther away. Too soon, the undertaker found himself at the base of the staircase curving wide above him. His eyes were adjusted now, their pupils black and engorged to gobble every scrap of available light. But the floor above was dark and impenetrable to his vision. He couldn't ascend those stairs blind. The first floor of the house had sucked dry his courage. He retreated to the dining room, where a silver candelabra rested atop the elegant table. Flash. Boom. Light washed through the windows. He lit the five candles and felt something within him loosen as the warm yellow glow flickered. The candles quietly hissed and popped, as if burning rendered fat instead of wax. Holding the candelabra before him like a talisman, the undertaker ascended the stairs. Again the search, room by room. Nothing lurked in the bathroom. He set the candelabra on the floor and tugged open a closet door with a startling screech. Dry linens were the only threat. The undertaker moved on. No corpses or blood stains marred the well-appointed master bedroom with its enormous four-poster bed and oak dressers. He re-entered the hall, following the candelabra, as if its circle of light would dart off and leave him behind. Having the light was almost worse than not having it. His pupils had shrunk down to nothing. He couldn't see anything beyond the sphere of radiance before him and felt the continuous need to whirl about and bring the light to bear behind him. Clammy sweat mingled with the cold rain soaking his clothes. He sniffled repeatedly. The storm outside grew feeble and the rain trickled away. The next room was a child's bedroom. It startled him with its contrast to the rest of the dwelling, his wavering candlelight dancing over a ruffled girl's bedspread and a litter of stuffed animals. A rugged Fisher-Price record player stood proudly amidst a scattering of hand-me-down forty-fives. The bed was rumpled. When he emerged again into the hall, he heard it. A slow, thick dripping. He followed the sound to the end of the hall. Dark liquid oozed from the cracks around a trap door set in the ceiling. The attic. He set the candelabra on the floor and saw a dangling cord barely within his reach. 
he experimented with different methods for simultaneously aiming the shotgun and grabbing the cord, but he couldn't do both at once. Drip. 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 He let the long-barreled weapon point off target and stretched onto his toes, snatching hurriedly at the cord and yanking sharply, and screamed as a shrieking mass flew down at him. A weight struck his face, and a cascade of warm liquid splashed down across him. His shotgun boomed massively, and plaster exploded from the wall as he was knocked off his feet. The candles were snuffed out, and pitch black smothered the hall. The undertaker crabbed backwards as he heard a moaning from overhead. Ma. Ma. Ma and a scuttling sound in the hall itself. He levered himself into a sitting position as his thumb flew over the hammers of the shotgun. Only one barrel had fired. He threw the weapon to his shoulder and aimed blind and clutched the trigger. Two feet of flame belched forth from the weapon as the deer slug flung itself lethally at a spot four feet in the air. An empty spot. The undertaker held his breath, trying to sort the split-second image from the muzzle flash, the scattering rain of blood from the attic, and beneath it, the huddled form of a child. He strained to listen, strained to feel, but his fear still crushed that delicate sense. More. Ma, ma, still echoed hauntingly down from the attic. In front of him in the hallway he heard tiny whimpering. He dropped the first match from trembling fingers, but managed to light the second. Stepping forward behind its weak glow, he beheld a small girl, she of the stuffed animals and record collection, in a fetal curl, and shaking with terror. She was drenched red-black in blood, and her eyes were huge white saucers. Child? He croaked through a strangled throat, dizzy from adrenaline. She made no response. He found the bloody candelabra and plucked a candle from it, then broke open his shotgun to extract the two spent shells shuddering at how close he had come to blasting the little girl. With two new slugs loaded, he closed the shotgun. He then unfolded and ascended the attic ladder, following the feeble glow of his candle. Moaned the thing in the corner. The wife. Her mouth worked, but language eluded her. You're safe now, he whispered. But the woman was oblivious to his presence. Her eyes were fixed on something that had happened hours before. Horror. The man of the house had been strung to an overhead beam by his feet, directly over the trap door. The girl must have been huddled beneath her father when the undertaker had pulled the door open. The dangling man had been savagely eviscerated completely drained of his organs and fluid. The hatred that had fueled the act 
was a musky stink still befouling the air. Downstairs, the undertaker repeated his trick with the handkerchief and phone, dialing 911. Then he fled to his car. The payphone was in a highway rest area, deserted in the hours before dawn. You need to get someone else to do this, the undertaker croaked into the phone. This is... this is horrible. The voice on the other end was unflinching. There is no one else. Then send me the file, damn it. The undertaker slammed the phone into its cradle. The connection to Peter King Gorey was still not apparent, but the connection between the new dead man, James T. Quaring, and the earlier dead man, Clausen, was. They had been partners in a small but highly profitable real estate company. There had been a third partner in the firm bearing the name of Lidecker. The undertaker shivered as he pulled on his clothes, still wet from their washing in the motel bathroom. He was coughing and sniffling continuously from the onset of an ugly cold. The dead cannot walk during the light of day, but the sun was no threat for the undertaker. He might be able to get to Lidecker first. Sunset Waiting The home was remote, but prosperous, the grounds neat and trimmed with obvious pride. A pile of red and yellow leaves waited on the grass for disposal. Corn stalks were tied around the light post at the end of the driveway, and a sheet-turned ghost hung with macabre Halloween glee from a tree branch. A mailbox set at streetside bore an ornately cursive L. Cold and tired, the undertaker huddled around a warm styrofoam cup of coffee in the driver's seat of his car. As soon as the last red lip of sunlight slipped away from the western horizon, he felt it. The rise of a dead man. The animating force was an unnatural scream in the ether. It was approaching. He blinked his eyes suddenly and realized he'd fallen asleep. He cursed and looked at the glow of his watch. He'd been out for more than thirty minutes. Something rustled in the bushes across the property. Unaware of the lurking horror, lights blazed warmly from inside the house. A happy family. If only they knew. A dark shadow lurched onto the front lawn. The undertaker reached back for his shotgun, unable to take his eyes off the approaching shape. He slid across the seat, eased open the passenger side door, and stepped out onto the dirt shoulder of the road. It saw him and halted its clumsy walk. The undertaker fought back a cough and sniffled as the cold air made his nose run. Primitive fear clawed through his fatigue, and he thumbed back both hammers. He hated this part. 
he never knew what to say to them. Stop! Oh, that was good. Peter Kingori stepped further into the glow from the light post, and the undertaker gagged. Dirt and leaves clung to Gory from whatever wild refuge he hid in during the day. A sharp stick jutted from his collarbone, piercing flesh, unnoticed. His black burial suit was tattered, what was left of it crusted stiff with dried blood from Clausen and Quering. Decay was sinking its destructive claws into Gory's gray flesh. His eyes had drained and fallen back into the sockets like the skins of empty grapes. You can't be here. You're dead, the undertaker said. Gory's mouth moved, and escaping air wheezed out as it tried to remember speech. Trust me, you should see yourself. You've been dead for a while. Again, the pain syllable. No! From twenty feet away, the undertaker lifted the heavy shotgun to his shoulder. Stand aside! Gory wheezed. The walking dead man took a step forward, and the undertaker blasted him with the first barrel. Gory spun like a top as his left shoulder separated, but he remained on his feet. His arm fell to the lawn as shouts erupted from inside the house. Gory's pallid countenance contracted, lips pulling back from his teeth in a feral snarl. His right arm lifted, blood-crusted fingers clenching, and he stepped again towards the undertaker. Boom! The second slug blasted him straight through the chest and knocked him off his feet. From the house, I called the police! Stay inside! The undertaker screamed at the man who opened the door to the house, presumably Lydecker. The undertaker hurriedly broke the shotgun open and tugged out the two smoking shells. Fifteen feet away, Gory levered himself up in a one-armed push-up and climbed to his feet. Shit! A shell slipped from his quivering fingers and the undertaker backpedaled across the lawn, right hand scrabbling in his coat pocket for more shells. Murderer! Gory moaned and lurched forward in a clumsy charge. The undertaker dropped to one knee as he forced both shells into the gun and snapped it shut. Gory's right arm stretched out as he lunged to within five feet. Boom! The first slug blew apart Gory's hip, so close that the muzzle blast set his clothes afire as he jerked away from the impact. The second slug hit his right knee, ripping the limb in half and knocking the undead into a crazy half-flip. The undertaker stumbled up and back several more steps as he reloaded. Unable to stand now, Peter King Gory pulled himself across the ground by his functional right hand. The undertaker lifted, aimed, fired. The blast blew the right arm off, and Gory's locomotion stopped. 
Another blast severed the rest of Gori's right leg at the hip. Exhausted, the undertaker backed away from the still writhing torso of the dead man. He opened the trunk of his car and laid the shotgun inside. When he turned back to Gori, he held a wide-bladed axe in his hands. Headlight beams danced through the misty dark as the yellow dividing line hurtled past to the left of the car. The undertaker's body sagged with an awesome weight of fatigue. The pieces still twitched in the large, hefty bag he had placed on the back seat. The undertaker coughed weakly and winced at the pain. He was so tired. A moan from the back seat, from inside the bag. The undertaker sneezed, eyes bleary. I'm not a murderer. You were already dead. Not you. Him. Lydiker? The question thrown over the shoulder to the severed head piled with the arms and legs and sundry bits of Peter King Gory. And the others. My wife. My daughter. And as the undertaker maintained a steady 55 on the highway, Gory continued on. He spoke of a housing project and groundwater contamination. He talked of hazardous chemicals and the cover-up by a hungry young real estate company. He described the sound of a little girl crying in pain as the bone cancer ate her away. He spoke of what a man feels when he makes the decision to increase his wife's morphine drip, knowing she will never regain consciousness. Never say his name again or hear him say he loves her so dearly. He sobbed in his rasping, undead way, as he blamed himself for not knowing better, for moving his family into the house that killed them. The sky was still dark when the undertaker pulled his vehicle to a stop in front of the cemetery. The rustling gate protested shrilly as he leaned back and pulled it open. He threw the bulging hefty bag over his shoulder and his knees buckled. Dead weight. His thoughts whirled in dark directions as he staggered among the resting places and grave markers until he reached the open grave. The undertaker's fingers felt thick and clumsy as he untied the plastic fastener, then upended the bag so that the various parts of Gori tumbled into the hole. He retrieved his shovel and Bible from the car, then returned to the graveside. Gori's head sobbed from within the deep hole, and the undertaker hurried with his prayer for the fallen. He asked for mercy for Peter King Gori. 
he asked that Gory be reunited with his wife and daughter and assured the corpse in the grave that it would indeed be so when the dirt-filled mouth mumbled the question up at him. Though, in truth, the undertaker had no idea how things worked on the other side. By the time the praying was complete, Gory had stopped making his sounds. The undertaker knew that Gory was still aware as he threw the first shovel full of dirt down onto him. He shuddered as the granules and pebbles bounced off of Gory's severed limbs, knowing that Gory's spirit would depart with the rising of the sun didn't make the task any easier. As the dirt piled around his head, Gory muttered a last word that sounded like Kristen. The undertaker couldn't remember if that was the wife or the daughter. False dawn was tickling the treetops at the eastern edge of the cemetery when the undertaker tamped down the last of the grave dirt. He leaned on his shovel and let the sweat run down his face, breathing hard from the exertion. The old man would call him within the day to ensure that the returning was complete. He always did. The undertaker thought he would tell the old man that he needed a rest again after he completed one final task. Gory's words echoed in his mind. The dead do not lie. The undertaker pulled out onto the road and began to drive. He had questions he wanted to ask. He decided that he would drive to Lidecker's house and ask his questions. And he would bring his shotgun. That was John C. Foster's The Undertaker, as read by Drew Sebastini. You haven't experienced true horror until you've weathered a winter in the bleak, frozen wastes of the Canadian prairies, and Drew has survived quite a few. He's been spinning tales since he was old enough to hold a pencil. Most often, Drew flexes his creative muscle as an advertising copywriter and creative director. He hopes you won't hold that against him. But in his spare time, he moonlights as a voiceover artist for radio and video commercial work. Drew lives in Saskatoon, Canada, with his wife, son, and a menagerie of furry creatures. Thank you, as always, Drew. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes or Acast, or wherever you found our podcast. Our show was produced by our editors Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by David Raiklin. Stick around for Rows of Six from Songs of the Pumpkin Boy, and don't forget to join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. The thinnest crescent moon I'd better get back soon Avoid main roads as I've been told That's where they like to fly I sneak down alleyways Behind the Just placed a peek inside the cellar spies the moon where Helen twined the serpents.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.